Grab your Bibles, everybody. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. We are continuing in this Wednesday evening uh, theme that we have, not up here yet, but anyway, it's our evening theme. We're going to know about Jesus' miracle ministry. Jesus' miracle ministry. And we have, we talked about miracles of provision. Uh, we've talked about miracles of deliverance. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about raising the dead. Raising the dead as part of Jesus' miracle ministry. But Acts chapter 2, verse 22 of the King James Version, Peter standing up there on the day of Pentecost said, You men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. The word approved there is a Greek word which means to expose, to view, or to bring out in the open. And so Jesus' stamp of approval upon Jesus Christ was the fact that in the open that Jesus performed signs, wonders, and miracles, which God did by him in the midst of you. So you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the miracle ministry of Jesus, and you'll find that Jesus did more than 40 miracles during his earthly ministry. In these categories, miracles of provision, we talked about, miracles of deliverance, we've talked about raising the dead, we'll talk about tonight, taming destructive nature, and also miracles of healing. Now, I love this verse, John 21, verse 25, the very last verse in the book of John says this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, if they should all be recorded one by one in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain or have room for the books that would be written about him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus did so many, so many miracle things that aren't even recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so much so that if they were all recorded in detail that the world couldn't hold all the volumes of books that would be written about him. So let me give you a little bit of an overview about people being raised from the dead. There were three in the Old Testament, one by Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 22, one by Elisha, and that's 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 35. And then one, a person's dead body was lowered into the grave where Elisha's bones were. And there was enough resident power just in Elisha's bones that the man was instantly raised from the dead. So we've got those three instances in the old covenant. We got three people raised from the dead in Jesus' ministry, the widow's son, the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. Jairus' daughter over in Matthew chapter 9, and Lazarus in John chapter 11. And then there are four times in the book of Acts uh, where Peter raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9, where Paul raised Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, and then another one where Paul himself was raised up after being stoned to death. In Acts chapter 14, the Bible says that the disciples made a circle around Jesus and that he was supernaturally raised up and that he left with them and then the next day departed out on another missionary journey. Now, the reason that we know that when Jesus was 
when he was raised up, that it was him being raised from the dead, is there is a particular word in the Greek language, A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I-N, and that word is used in every case in the New Testament where people were raised from the dead. That was the word that was used for raised. And here, Paul got up bodily alive after being stoned to death. And the reason that we know that is simply because of the use of that Greek language. And then most importantly, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus himself was raised from the dead. And we are all so excited and thankful for that. Now, let me give you kind of an interesting factoid. Uh, and that's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. And it involves John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. John the Baptist was the one upon seeing him come to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Three other times, John the Baptist spoke out about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and God even gave him a supernatural sign that he said that this will show you that Jesus is the one whom I sent and that you will see the Holy Spirit come down and light upon him like a dove when the Holy Spirit came and Jesus entered into his earthly miracle ministry. And so here we find John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 is now in prison and, and apparently has some doubts about whether this is really the one, you know, is he really the one and so he sent, it says in verse two, now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? And that, that's a strange question from somebody that so boldly and vocally declared to be Jesus, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. But unbelief can do a lot of crazy things to people. So, this is what Jesus answered and said unto him. He said this, go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, this, this list was not arbitrary, but rather Jesus was quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And so the, the very thing that John the Baptist needed to combat his doubts was the Word of God. The Word of God. And so when Jesus, when he's answering the question that John's two disciples came, are you the one uh, that was sent or should we look for another? He said again, the blind received their sight, a miracle, miracle manifestation. The lame walk, another miracle manifestation. The lepers are cleansed, another miracle manifestation. The dead hear and the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. What would you tell a poor person that would be good news? If it's the gospel, it's got to be good news. So what would you preach to a poor person and it be good news? You don't have to be poor anymore. 
because of what I'm because of what Jesus is going to do. You don't have to remain in that condition anymore. I can either give you a fish or I can teach you to fish. So we're going to see that the gospel is powerful. And so I want you to see that he gave him a clear word that gave him, I believe, the, the answer and the remedy to doubt. And that is that you always, in every case, you need the scriptures. Amen. You need the scriptures. Now, I want to look at tonight, we're going to look at uh, Lazarus being raised up from the dead, probably the most beloved and the most wi widely known miracle maybe of the New Testament. And that is that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so I'm going to begin reading it in John chapter 11. And we're going to, I'm sorry, Matthew, uh, John chapter 11, right? And we're going to read all the way down through the entire end of the chapter, all 57 verses. And then as we read, I'm going to stop, we'll make commentary along the way. And said, now a certain man named Lazarus was ill. He was of Bethany, the city where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now, we all know about Mary and Martha because we have that passage uh, in the New Testament concerning Mary and Martha, where uh, Mary, Martha was much encumbered about much serving. And uh, yet the Bible says that they were of Bethany, which is about two kilometers away from Jerusalem, not far away at all, the village where Mary and Martha, her sister, lived. Interestingly, anytime you find Lazarus mentioned in the Bible, never mentions a wife. So we take it that he was single and that the, the, the brother and the two daughters lived together there in Bethany, where Jesus often stayed when he was in that area. And this Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was now sick. And so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love so well is sick. Now that, that tells us a couple of things. Number one, that they were not strangers because often Jesus would stay in their home. And so he knew Lazarus and Mary and Martha well. Notice that in this, when they sent a messenger, this, this was sent to him uh, by messenger, Lord, he whom you love so well is sick. They didn't say come and pray. They just told him that Lazarus was sick. And so when Jesus received the message, verse 4 he said this. Now, I want to kind of give you a go ahead of myself a little bit. Lazarus had already died by the time the messenger reached him where he was, some 28 miles away. And so Lazarus had already died. So when Jesus received the messenger or the message from the messenger, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. But on the contrary, it is to honor God and promote his glory that the Son of God may be glorified or through or by it. And again, I'm reading from the Amplified Classic. And then the Chain James Version there says, this sickness is not unto death. Now, this, this entire chapter revolves around that phrase. This sickness is not unto 
death. Now, this tells me a couple of things. Number one, it tells me that God is not saying that he put the sickness and then death on Lazarus so then he could then turn around and raise him up and be honored and glorified. That's not the case. We're going to find that God had nothing to do with Lazarus' sickness, nor did he have anything to do with Lazarus dying. So what he is not saying is that I did this so that I then could turn around and through my son be glorified. That is not what he is saying. Secondly, what he's not saying is that Lazarus would not die. He didn't say that. He said, rather, that Jesus prophesies the final outcome. When he said this, he says, this sickness is not to end in death. He didn't say Lazarus wouldn't die. What he was saying was prophesying that something extraordinary, miracle working is going to happen in Lazarus and Lazarus is going to be raised up. And so he says that this sickness is not to end in death. In other words, the final outcome would not be death, but rather he said it would be to honor God. What would happen would honor God and promote his glory that the Son of God may be glorified by or through it. So God is going to get the glory, even though he had nothing to do with Lazarus being sick or Lazarus dying. So the final word is going to be that of Jesus Christ and not death. Amen. And so he says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These were his, they were his dear friends and he held them in loving esteem. So notice somebody that you love and that you hold in high regard, you don't want them dead. Neither did Jesus. So here he says, therefore, even when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he still stayed two days longer in the same place where he was. Was he disindifferent? Was that why he just stayed where he was for two days? In other words, he knew already by the spirit that Lazarus had already died. So there was no hurry to get there. Stayed there two days longer in the same place. And then after that interval, he said to his disciples, let us go back again into Judea. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews only recently in, were intending to, to and try to stone you. And are you thinking of going back there again? They threatened your life. They said, if you ever come back to this part of our nation, we're going to kill you. And you, are you really seriously thinking about going back in that same area? And the disciples said to him, you're not going back. And Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours in the day? Anyone who walks about in the daytime does not stumble because he sees by the light of the world. But if anyone walks about in the night, he does stumble because there is no light in him. The light is lacking to him. What is he saying? Think about what he's saying in the context of going to pray for Lazarus. I believe what he's saying is, is that a man must finish a day's work 
in the time allotted by the Father. A, a man must finish a day's work in the time allotted by the Father. And so he's saying that I feel no danger as I walk in my Father's light and that as I go by divine appointment to fulfill his will and to glorify him. Now there's the key here is the appointed time that Jesus had an appointed slot of time. Remember, it's not going to be many days from this day that they would put Jesus himself to death. And so Jesus had things to accomplish. He had things to do. So he said that a man must finish a day's work working in the Father's appointed time. And he said these things and then added, our friend Lazarus is at rest and sleeping, but I'm going there that I might awaken him out of his sleep. And the disciples answered and said, Lord, if he's sleeping, then he'll recover. And then Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he referred to him falling into a refreshing and natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Oftentimes you'll find the word sleep used in the New Testament, even in the epistles, to describe death. Death. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is death. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. It will help you to believe, to trust and rely on me. However, let us go unto him. What did he, what did he mean by, his, by saying that I'm glad that I was not there? Before he died. Why? Because he, he intimates that I would have healed him of whatever sickness or ailment or illness that he had, that I would have healed them. But because I was not there, what I'm about to do is to bring greater glory to the Father. And so he says, then Thomas, remember they said, however, so let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin or Didymus. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews often had two names. They had a Hebrew name. His was Thomas. They had a Greek name. His was Didymus. And they called him the twin. Why? Because of his resemblance, his likeness to Jesus Christ himself. His physical likeness, which made him even double jeopardy of being harmed, of being mistaken for being the Messiah when they went there to, in order to raise up uh, Lazarus from his sleep or from the dead. And so then he said to his fellows, let us go to that we may die and be killed along with him. What's he talking about? He was, his, his affection for Jesus Christ, his loyalty to him was so fierce that he would not let Jesus go alone, but he, that he would go with him even if it meant death. That, that is a striking way in which covenant loyalty is revealed. That I'm willing to go and even give my own life, but you're not going alone. And so he says this, so when Jesus arrived, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, four, interesting, four days. The, the Jewish tradition 
was that they believed that the soul lingered around the body, hovered around the body for three days. But then on the fourth day, there was no hope of resuscitation or resurrection. And so Jesus waited until Lazarus had been dead the maximum four, four days. And then Jesus came on the scene. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away. And a considerable number of the Jews had gone out to see Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. You ever seen any images on TV of people in Middle Eastern nations at funerals, how they act? They wail and they cry and they, and they, and, and in the Middle East, it was commonplace that unrestrained weeping and wailing gave more honor to the dead. The more wailing and weeping, the more honor they gave to the one who died. And that's why you see uh, in uh, Lebanon and other nations where you have Arabs as well as others, that they, I mean, when they, you have the funeral, it's, it's tumult to us. But to them, it's that, it was that cultural thing that he gave honor to the dead. So many had come in order to, to console them. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him while Mary remained sitting in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Master, if you had been here, my brother would have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will grant it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha replied, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Now, I, I'm shocked because Martha gave no consideration to the fact that Jesus would raise him from the dead. Her only consideration was, oh yeah, he'll be raised up, but it's going to be at the last day along with everybody else. But Jesus said to her, I am myself the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in, adheres to, trust in, and relies on me, although he were dead, yet shall he live. In other words, Jesus is saying that I am the author of the resurrection and that I am the source of all life. And it's just as easy for me to raise him up now as it would be to raise him up later. Think about it. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life and that the power of life and death abides and resides in me. And then he said, and whoever continues to live and believe in and have faith in and cleave to and rely on me shall never actually die at all. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed. I do believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, even he who was to come into the world, it is for your coming that the world is waited. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and privately whispered to her, the teacher. Notice what she called him, the teacher. Why would she say the teacher? What did Mary do? She sat at Jesus' feet and learned. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and learned. So Mary would would know right away that that was Jesus. The teacher is close at hand 
and is asking for you. And when she heard this, she sprang up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the same spot where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were sitting within the house and consoling her saw how hastily Mary had arisen and gone out, they followed her. What's going on here? We want to know. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to pour out her grief there. And when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she dropped at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But when Jesus saw her sobbing, the Jews who came with her also sobbing, he was, now this is so important, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He chafed in spirit and sighed and was disturbed. Now, let's think about what this thing. See, the Jews, I mean, the Greeks believed in the total inability of God to feel any emotion at all. That God would be cold, distant, isolated, and he would not be, this was not going to be the God of the Bible. Because here we find that Jesus was moved as he saw them grieving and sobbing. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, the Greek word there is an interesting word, trouble. It, it, it describes a horse snorting. That's an odd thing, a horse snorting. In other words, he talks about how that deep emotion seized him that brought forth an involuntary groan, like a snort of sorts, and, and that he was disturbed and angered at the great destruction that the great enemy, the human race, had brought, that was death. Death. So I believe that Jesus here was not only moved by their grieving and their sorrow, but he was mad. He was angry at what the devil had done to those that he loved so deeply. And, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now that we, we see the humanity side of Jesus, that he wept, that he indeed loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the Jews said, see how tenderly he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who had opened a blind man's eyes have prevented this man from dying? And I believe that these words were vain empty of power. Jesus didn't even respond to them. He said, now Jesus again sighing repeatedly and deeply disquieted approached the tomb. It was a cave, a hole in a rock and a boulder lay against the entrance to close it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man explained by Lord, by this time he is decaying and throwing off an offensive odor for he has been dead four days. Proof that Lazarus was really dead. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you and promise you that if you would believe and rely on me that you would see the glory of God? What is the glory of God? It's the power of God in manifestation. That's his glory. 
And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Yes, I know that you always hear and listen to me, but I have said this on account of and for the benefit of the people standing around so that they may believe that you did send me, that you have made me your messenger. And when he had said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Or the King James Version says, Lazarus, come forth. Notice it was a command of faith. Jesus never prayed. He commanded, Lazarus, come forth. And out walked the man who had been dead, his hands and feet wrapped in burial clothes, linen strips, and with a burial napkin browned around his face. And I commanded, he's walking just in a kind of like this. And so Jesus then said to him, free him of the burial wrappings and let him go. And upon seeing what Jesus had done, many of the Jews who had come with me believed in him. They trusted him, adhered to him and relied on him. But some of them went back to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the council, the Sanhedrin and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, evidences, and miracles. And if we let him alone to go on like this, everybody will believe in him and adhere to him. And the Romans will come and suppress and destroy and take away our holy place, meaning the temple, and our nation, our temple and city, and our civil organization. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, declared, you know nothing at all nor do you understand or reason out that it is expedient and better for your own welfare that one man should die on behalf of the people than the whole nation should perish, be destroyed or ruined. Now he, he did not say this simply of his own accord. He was not self-moved, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. Think about it. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was to die for the nation. And notice it was a quote from Isaiah 53, 8, from the Amplified says, by oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. And as for his generation, who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken to his death for the transgression of my Isaiah's people to whom the stroke was due. So indeed what he prophesied came to pass. Jesus died for and on behalf of the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation also, but for the purpose of uniting in one body the children of God who had been scattered far and wide. So from that day on, they took counsel and plotted together how they might put him to death. Now, here's the amazing thing, these last verses. For that reason, Jesus no longer appeared publicly among the Jews, but left there and retired to the district that borders on the wilderness, the desert, to a village called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. And then the Jewish Passover was at hand, and many of them gave orders that wherever he was, that they should tell him about it, and they would go and kill him. Now, I'm going to close with this. It's an amazing, this is a powerful passage of scripture that after that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' fame spread far and wide. 
Matter of fact, I've read several commentaries because right after this is when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Many think that the reason that the crowds came was because of the miracle of Lazarus. Matter of fact, it also says in a few chapters later, three days after Lazarus was raised from the dead, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus went to a, a dinner party and that people came from everywhere, not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus, the one who had been raised up from the dead. They wanted to see this person who was dead, but now is alive. Amen. So you got two people raised from the dead at one dinner party. I reckon it raised, you know, some real question marks in people's minds. I, we, I, I just got to see this sight. This is amazing. So I want you to see that the miracle of raising people from the dead, when you think about it, is a miracle indeed. You know, Anne went with several of the ladies in the ladies uh, group, and they were in... Um, on their way to Boone, they were in, uh, Lisa McCray College is there. What's the name of that little town? Anybody know? I couldn't hear. Uh, where Lisa McCray is. Yeah, anyway, they were eating in a restaurant and, the, and the, there's a man and woman sitting next to them and the man just fell over, seemingly dead. No pulse, no anything at all, nothing. And they were clamoring around the wait staff and the people that were there. And Anne simply knelt down and laid her hands on him and just quietly just rebuked death and commanded life to come back into him. And that man took a deep breath and rose up and eyes were open. And, and he just said, you know, what happened to me? And it was just a miracle thing. The uh, ambulance came and took him away. But the, the report was that he was perfectly okay. I'm telling you that people are being raised up from the dead all over the world. It's just that CNN isn't telling anybody. Nor any of the other liberal, you know, outfits. But there are miracle things happening all over the world. Things that would shock and surprise even many Christians, many believers. So I want to say this about miracles. That if you are willing to live without them, you will. If you're willing to live without miracle manifestations, you will. Matter of fact, many denominations and many church groups have kind of, they carved out an area around them where it is a no miracle zone because miracles simply do not fit within the context of their theology. And that's sad. Just like when the, the Philistines came and stole the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And that, that's where the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt over the lid of that ark where the two cherubims faced each other. And, and it was that that made Israel Israel, was God's presence among his people. But yet, you know what they did when the ark got stolen and stayed away for years? They just, they just switched gears and just went through the motions of just playing church, playing house, just like... Everything was just normal, but it was not normal because that which made Israel was Israel. And that's because Saul had no respect for the ark. 
But as soon as David was placed in the office, the very first thing that he did was send out search teams to find the Ark of the Covenant. They found it down at Obadiah's house and they brought it back. They didn't bring it back to Mount Gibeon where they had placed it earlier, but they took it over uh, looking Jerusalem to Mount Zion where they had 24 hour a day prayer services and they praised and magnified God. Amen. And that's called uh, the, where the tabernacle of David had fallen down according to Acts chapter 15. It meant that there was no longer any vital praise and worship. And so when they restored the tabernacle of David, praise once again came among the people of God and has remained here ever since. So there's so many, many, many powerful truths that spin off from the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I long for, we are praying for miracle, miracle manifestations. Just like they did in Acts chapter four in the early church. Lord, stretch forth your hand to heal by the name of your holy child, Jesus. They prayed for miracles. Why? Because they knew that miracles is the dinner bell. You ring the dinner bell when people come. People come. It attracts crowds. It did in every place in the Bible where miracle manifestations were practiced. People came. Amen. People came. So I want you to see that there is a grand place for miracles in the life of the church today in the 21st century. As sophisticated as we are, we need to give a demonstration to the world that Jesus is alive. You know, they might, they might argue about your theology, but they can't argue with the up and straight up miracle. Amen. Because it is living proof positive that Jesus is alive and still doing his work in the midst of his people. Amen.